Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by CME Group, where I continue my conversation with Dr. Daniel Crosby, who is the chief behavioral officer at Brinker Capital, as well as the author to a number of highly recommended books, including the book titled The Behavioral Investor and the host of the Standard Deviation podcast. The fourth one that you cite, which I often think is kind of the biggest one, or maybe the one we're just, at least in, in, in our industry, that I think we, we talk the most about when we talk about why it makes sense to consider managed futures or trend following, and that's emotion. Mm. Uh, it's, it's such a big one. Yeah, maybe you talk a little bit more about, I mean, I also spoke with uh, Andrew Lowe on, on the podcast, and uh, and he's also talked about, you know, the, the challenges with the emotion, uh, but I'd love to hear your your thoughts about this area as well and, and what you found to be kind of the key key points when it comes to dealing with emotions as, as an investor, I guess. Yeah, the, the Andrew Lowe episode was great. I listened to that and I'm a big I'm a big fan of his work. So emotion is interesting because emotion overrides cognition pretty dramatically. So mm. when you look at studies of investors who are under duress, like investors who are under stress, we find that they lose 13% of their cognitive capacity. So like effectively 13% of your IQ. And you got to think that, you know, some of us, some of us don't have 13% to give, right? We need, sure. we need every last <laughs> shred of, of, of brain power that we've got. And so emotion overrides that thinking and, and it causes us to, to make poor decisions. There's, there's a couple of things we can do around emotion, right? The first is be a quant, basically automate doing the right thing and set in place the, the stop gaps that we talked about earlier. I think learning about emotion and, and learning to handle it, because I think things like trend and momentum and other things actually ride with human emotion. You can use human emotion in your favor. And uh, I think there are some examples of, of even ways that we can do that in, in an investment standpoint and from like a, a saving and planning our financial lives. You know, I, I cited a study in my first book that talked about low income savers who looked at a picture of their children before making a financial decision saves two and a half times as much as those in a control group. And so mm -hmm. if you're a trader, right, if you're an investor or a trader, like, why are you doing this? You know, why are you doing this? Why are, you know, use, using that emotion to keep you focused on your why 
and hopefully having that keep you focused on your rules. So emotion cuts both ways, right? Emotion can be used to our benefit or to our detriment. But I think if we keep that why front and center, there's a lot that we can do to, to, to keep our head in the games. But, you know, more than anything, overcoming emotion uh, is just about automating, uh, just about automating. And, you know, this is, this is where it gets tricky because a lot of people want to have goals, right? They say, oh, I'm going to have a goal to control my emotions uh, and I'm going to work. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do whatever I do to try and control my emotions. I'm going to exercise. Those are all good things, but you don't need goals. Like everybody has a goal. You need rules, you know, the, the best example I can think of is New Year's Day. Everybody has a goal to lose 20 pounds. Like you don't need a goal. Every idiot has a goal. You need rules. And the rule is I go to the gym four days a week. Okay. Same thing with investing. Everybody has a goal to keep their head, you know, to stay emotionless and calm. Don't have a goal. Every idiot has a goal. Have a rule that I don't do X, Y, and Z. I do A, B, C. So rules over goals all day long. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we talked about kind of the, the four key behavioral risks or biases. And we've also touched a little bit about, you know, some of the, the solutions. But just for the benefit of of uh, our listeners, I want to talk because you very neatly put it into something you call the four C's. That, although my wife told me when we got married that the four C's has completely different meaning. So now I'm confused here. Co but color, color cut clarity and what's the other one? Carrot? Yeah, mm -hmm. carrot. Yeah, yeah. That, that seems to be front and center as well. So, uh, <laughs> so your four C's are, are a little bit different. Although, you know, so consistency, clarity, courageousness, and conviction. So I'd love to spend a little bit of time on, on each of those because I think this is where we can hopefully, you know, help our listeners today. Because as you say, I mean, we're prone to these biases, but there are ways to to handle them better than what we would normally do. So so why don't we just, you know, jump in and, and start with consistency and, you know, what do you think about uh, when, you, when you use that as a, as a way to overcome? Sure. So consistency is, again, around automation and being a rules-based or systematic investor. So the best uh, example I can cite here is a meta-analysis of, uh, so which is a meta-analysis being a study of all of the studies. So this meta-analysis of following simple rules versus relying on PhD level human discretion, right? So do you, do you just follow the rules or do you get a group of experts to make a decision? They looked at over 200 studies and they found that 94% of the time, simple rules met or exceeded the level of, of decision-making by a group of experts. And this has nothing to do with, with cost or headache or time spent. Obviously, the rules save you on cost and headache and time spent. But, you know, this, this cut across everything from stock picking to medical diagnostics to prison recidivism studies. I think the prison recidivism study is fascinating. In the U.S., we have a crazy problem. One one percent of our population is in jail, which is its own podcast. That's insane. But, you know, one one percent of the American population is in jail. And so we have to come up with ways to decide, you know, 
who who gets set free and who has to stick around and keep learning their lessons. And so what historically we've done is we get groups of people like me, you know, get big brains with good degrees. And we say, okay, you three doctors of psychology, you sit across from this prisoner and determine whether or not he's repentant, whether or not he's reformed and he's ready to be back in society. Okay. So that's, you know, column A. Column B is looking at things like how did they act in jail you know, were they were they well behaved in jail and what were they in for? You know, were they in for possession of marijuana or are they in for, you know, rape and murder? And so by just looking at the two behaviors, what are they in for? How did they act in jail? That was three times as effective as paying a host of, of a panel of experts. And the same thing is true of, of stock picking and portfolio construction. We see again and again that following some simple rules is better than paying a team of CFAs, sorry CFAs, you know, get the CFAs to make the rules, get the CFAs to staff the rules. Uh, but we don't need some complicated investment committee, uh, you know, making up their own stories or trying to use their own discretion. We need good rules based on probability based on the way the capital markets behave over time. So consistency, you're going to get uh, better results for less time and less money. It's an incredible, it's an incredible deal. And let me just add to all the listeners, by the way, which, you know, where I will definitely encourage you to to read your books and, and in particular, the one that, that I cited in the beginning, The Behavioral Investor, because what you do actually is also you, you make it very practical. You have, you know, a few key points uh, at the end of each topic, so to speak, which I find really, really useful. Now, clarity, and it kind of goes a little bit with what you just said before, you know, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication as Leonardo da Vinci is quoted in your book for, for having said, do you want to add something? I mean, where does clarity become a little bit, uh, you know, more important perhaps uh, in, in terms of investing? So, uh, you know, I, I have a different job now, but for, for a while there, I was involved in the, the creation and, and sale of these sort of behaviorally informed investment strategies. And the most common criticism I got when trying to market these things to institutional investors was it just seems too easy. Like, it's just too simple. You know, where's the complexity? And so as my friend, Dr. Brian Portnoy says, we have this fetish for complexity in the world of financial services, and it's really, really misguided. And so let me give you a, you know, a couple of reasons why that's the case. The Fed, uh, the U.S. Fed, releases 45,000 pieces of economic data each year. Okay, that's insane. 45,000 pieces of economic data. If you regress all 45,000 of those variables against each other, do you think you're going to come out with some things that are correlated? Yeah, of course. Like, of course you are. You're going to find some signal there, but it may not really be signal. So we have so much information now that there's so much noise out there that if we're not careful, it can, if we're not you know, adhering to this dedication to simplicity, we can find signal where there's just noise. So to give a couple of examples, 
There's the famous one about Bangladeshi butter production being 96% correlated with moves in the S&P 500. But like, are you, you know, are, are, are you and I going to go start a, a Bangladeshi butter production hedge fund after this? Like, probably not. Uh, because in order for a signal to make sense, uh, it needs it needs three things. And I talk about this in the behavioral investor. Uh, you need data, of course, you know, it needs to show up in the data. That's a given. But most people stop there. You know, most people stop there. The second thing you need is you need a theory. You know, like why, why might these data be there? Because that kills your Bangladeshi butter production hedge fund right there. You go, okay, it's in the data, but it makes no sense. Okay, there's no good philosophy. There's no good theory as to why this might be the case. And then the third thing you need is behavior. You know, signals that endure, things like value, things like, uh, you know, trend and carry and these sorts of things, they all have a behavioral component to them, which is why they endure. Because if you look at uh, the history of market anomalies, calendar effects and different things that don't have behavior to them, they get discovered and then they get arbitraged away as as quickly as they get discovered. So a, a good signal is simple, but it has data, it has theory, and it has behavior somewhere in there. Um, because bad behavior is forever. You know, behavioral tendencies uh, go on forever. You know, I, I I don't care how many labels you put on a candy bar. I would bet on. I would bet on the American public eating candy bars for from here until eternity. You know, you you can't put enough warning labels on them to to discourage that behavior. No, I mean, I think there are lots of fascinating things you talk about. Just just to comment on the last point you make about behavior. I mean, that's exactly what Jeff Bezos did and how he built Amazon. Right? There are certain behaviors we want things as cheaply as possible, uh, as quick as possible, and those are the behaviors that he is exploiting very well. It seems. But I think the the other thing that you quoted there or, or mentioned that I think is really interesting, and that is this massive amount of data and how we are fascinated with it because what I see in in our industry right now is of course the word big data. So mm -hmm. people are just you know suckers for even more data even though we come with our trend following strategies for example done it for decades um, we use open high low close that's all we need it really doesn't sound very sexy or very complex and it's not but it works. But it's just not what people want to hear. You know, they want to be, um, you know, being Danish. I'm, I'm, you know, familiar with, you know, obviously Hans Christian Andersen, and it's kind of the emperor and uh, who has no clothes. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's really, really interesting. Really interesting. Well, the, so, the greatest the greatest philosopher of all time is Danish. I tried to I tried to name my son Soren after Kierkegaard, but my wife wasn't <laughs> having it. So shout out to the Danes. Shout out to the Danes. Yeah, maybe not so much for the from the White House right now with Greenland <laughs> in play, but uh, there we are. There we are. That's another podcast, I think. Yeah, courageousness. We as uh, in our world feel very courageous when we you know follow our rules every day. What uh, what do you think of when you think about courageousness? So courageousness is again sort of automating the process of of doing what makes sense with your head but is almost always going to feel wrong with your heart. So the the tricky part about being a behavioral investor is you you almost always feel stupid. Like <laughs> you almost always feel like you're doing the wrong thing. Now you're going to be rich and feel stupid. So that's, you know, that's a that's a good trade-off. But feeling comfortable and doing the right thing 
have almost no overlap in in financial markets. The the right thing to do is very seldom the the easy thing to do in financial markets. So that piece is really all about automating uh, the process of doing the the dirty work. And so there have been studies. I mean, there have been studies that show you know physically, not just psychologically, but but doing things like being a contrarian investor is physically painful. We don't have separate sensors, right, for 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 psychic and physical pain. If pain pain is pain is pain. And so they do studies on, you know, people who've lived through the great financial crisis, you know, they have PTSD like symptoms, post traumatic stress disorder type symptoms. Do studies uh, on sort of high conviction contrarian value investors and they show signs of of social isolation. And so being a behavioral investor is a bit of a lonely road. And so that's just, you know, that chapter just talks about the courage of automating that process and then understanding that if you feel crummy, if you feel alone, if you feel like you're crazy, um, you know, you're going to and you, you might be on to something. Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess it ties in quite nicely with the last C, meaning conviction and, uh, you know, the the need you know, to do these different things in order to succeed and, 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 and just the belief, I guess, to follow the rules every day. But how would you, how would you frame sort of conviction in, in a more sophisticated way? So conviction, you know, there's, there's two things you, you need to be successful as, as an investor. You need to have a unique opinion and that opinion needs to be right, you know, the <laughs> small detail. You need to have, you know, you need to express a unique opinion that needs to be the correct opinion. So there has never been a better time in the history of the world to be an investor. Like if you just are the average, you know, the average saver with a modest income and you just want to diversify and set it and forget it, there are a host of wonderful uh, low-cost index and other options that are available to you, and you can be very successful that way. But I write my books for active investors, right? I write my books for people who are trying to beat the market. And so this is just saying, uh, look, if you want to do this, if you want to play this game, you need to have conviction. You need to to find the sweet spot between diversification and conviction and express a unique opinion. 75% in the U.S., I don't know what it's like internationally, in the U.S., when you look at mutual funds that are labeled active, 75% of them don't differ meaningfully from their benchmark. And so what you've got is a lot of people charging high fees for very little courage, right? Very little conviction, very little in the way of a unique opinion. So yeah, my advice here is like, look, if you want to be, uh, uh, you know, there's more important things in the world than investing. There's more important things in the world than making money. So if you just want to index your money and go, you know, watch your kid's baseball game, that's a great way to live. Go do that. But if you're going to play this game, if you're going to be crazy uh, like, like you and I are and try and play this game, then you need to express a unique opinion and you need to be brave enough to do that in a high conviction way or don't bother. Yeah, no, absolutely perfect. Now, there we've been through, you know, kind of the, the key points and obviously people should go and buy your book so they can get all the details. But there's a couple of sort of more random topics or rather maybe statements that I wanted to uh, run by you as we sort of slowly start to to wind down our conversation and just 
kind of hear you talk about them through your lens. And the first one that comes uh, to mind is this thing, process over outcome. Tell me why this is important when it comes to investing. So my friend Annie Duke is a poker player and she's written a great book called Thinking in Bets that's and she refers to this as resulting. You know, we all the time we sort of work backwards from the results or the outcomes of something and, and decide post hoc whether or not it was a good decision. Uh, being a good investor uh, means you have to work in the in the opposite direction. You need to you need to follow a process. So you know y- your man Kierkegaard said something to the effect of you know m- life must life can only uh, be understood looking backwards, but it must be looked uh, lived you know moving lived, forward, yes. right? And so that's what we have to understand. So we we have to do the do the right thing, follow the right process, even though it's not going to always uh, end in the outcome that we want. I I shared a I shared a a tweet this week. There was a gentleman in Italy, I believe. He put a hundred thousand dollars. He was playing craps. He put a hundred thousand dollars on whatever it was. I don't I don't gamble. So you know, red twenty five or whatever it was. And it and it hit, or sorry, roulette rather, and it hit, and so he won three and a half million dollars on his one hundred thousand dollar bet. So you look at that and go, did that guy make a good decision? You ask the the average person, did this guy make a good decision? And the average person on the street will say, yeah, like of yeah, that's a great decision because he you know he won three million three and a half million dollars on this. The behavioral investor understands that you can get the right outcome and still be a moron. Like that guy is still an idiot, even though he won. Right? You have to evaluate the decision based on its its probabilities and not on the outcome. And that's a very very tough thing to do. Most people think that guy's a genius when really he's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love Annie Duke's uh, work as well. She's uh, definitely written some some great books and 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 talks a lot about that. I think there's this, in a particular there's a a football incident in the Super Bowl that that she cites, which uh, also is fascinating about whether that was a, a the right decision or a good decision to to make. I wanted to also ask you about this one, something that certainly goes against humans, namely that in order to be a good active investor, we need patience and persistence and paying zero attention to all the noise. If you look at the predictors of of moving human behavior, I like to put things in groups and and make them alliterative. You may have noticed with my four C's. But if you look at the things that that move human behavior, right, we've got education, environment, and encouragement. So with respect to the noise, I think we need, you know, all three things, right? We need education. We need to educate ourselves on how to be informed consumers of financial media, Uh, when I started my career as a psychologist, the first group of people I worked with was uh, women with women with eating disorders. And so, one of the things that we would do when you're when you're educating a young woman who has a, a an eating disorder, one of the first things that we would do is educate her around uh, the media and how you know models are airbrushed and there's makeup and it's not real right and like what are they trying to sell you and why are they doing this how do they get these unrealistic beauty standards and we need to do the same thing with financial media most financial media is not 
put out in the world for you or I to make a profit, right? It's to get clicks and eyeballs. And so we have to really understand the base motives of, of the information that we're taking mm-hmm. in, understand who's selling us good information and who's selling us hysteria. Uh, the second thing we need is the right environment, right? For many people, the right environment is going to be abstinence, you know, the same way that you would tell an alcoholic to not go hang out at a bar. You know, you would tell the average investor, you know, you're going to want to leave a lot of this alone. You're not going to want to watch the news every day. You're not going to want to look at your statement 15 times a day. You know, Robinhood, the free trading platform here, here in the based in the U.S., they just came out with some information about how often the, you know, their average user is checking their account, and I'm going to mess up the exact number. But it was multiple times a day. And it's like, eh, you know, for the average person, that makes no sense. And you're, you're just scaring yourself. So it's the wrong environment. And then the third thing we need is encouragement. So that might, you know, for the average person, that might be a financial advisor. You know, for, for a trader, that might be a coach. Uh, That might be something as simple as your podcast, right? Like just checking in every week, getting encouragement, getting new information. But you need all those things. You need to educate yourself on the right thing to do. You need to put yourself in the right environment so you're not tempted to sort of latch on to noise that you shouldn't be attending to. Uh, And then you need a coach or you need a support system of some kind uh, to help keep you on the straight and narrow path. The last sort of statement uh, I wanted to get your uh, view on it's it's I think it's a big one because I think it's it's incredibly misunderstood often, and that is volatility can be our friend and volatility is not the same as risk. Help us understand that one. It, yeah, so uh, I mean, there's so many reasons why that this is the case. Okay, so I mean, for for the long term investor, think of it this way. I mean, for the short-term investor, I mean, you can. There's just vehicles. You can use straddles and different things, and volatility can very directly be your friend. Uh, but for you know, for the average investor, you got to think over the last 35 years in the U.S. market, the average intra-year drawdown has been 14%. So we get a correction every single year on average. Right. We get a we get a bear market every five years or so on average. And we get a correction though every single year. And yet the market has ended up twenty-seven of those thirty-five years. So it baffles me that every time there's a hiccup in the market, we lose our minds. Like in in the US here, we're like what, three percent off of all time highs and we're having cable news specials on markets in turmoil. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like it happens as regularly as your birthday or Christmas, and yet every time it happens, we're surprised. And so for traders, you know, I mean, there's all there's all sorts of ways in which volatility can very directly be your be your friend by, you know, trading the VIX or using straddles or different things. Uh, but even for longer term, more fundamental investors, volatility is a buying opportunity long term. Uh, it's very normal. We shouldn't act like it's a big deal when it comes around. And, uh, you know, it represents a long term buying opportunity. So, I, you know, I, I just I just don't know how to say to people more directly that this is the price you pay. The reason why investing in capital markets pays you well uh, is because they're uncertain. 
and that is the price of admission. It's just part of the game. And the more that we can embrace that fact and run with it and even learn to love it, I don't mean to use a German word by, uh, you know, I'm going to mess up this German word here, but right, the, the schadenfreude, right? Like we need to, we need to cultivate a deep sense of schadenfreude so we can, we can actually be thrilled when things are going bad in the markets. And I'm, I'm, I'm there and I, and I want others to be there with me. Yeah, no, well said, well said. You know, as we start to to kind of wrap up our quite wide-ranging conversation, I want to just come back to to you sort of one last time and talk about, you know, when you look at all the research you've done and, you know, trying to put something out there which is, you know, as practical as as it can be. I mean, are there kind of one or two things you find that investors can do today, uh, next week to to start kind of the journey of of becoming a better investor and and getting the the behavior on their side rather than against them. So the first thing that I would encourage folks to do is you know going back to to the the religion comment I would encourage folks to read widely and find their faith, right? So I think it mm. there's there's lots of types of investing uh, some of which are very dissimilar that all work, right? You know, trend works, carry works, value works. Uh, you know, wide diversification works. Read until you find what's consistent with with your belief system, with your worldview, and find a system that you love. Right? For me, it's this sort of combination of of value growth momentum. Right? As uh, as Wes Gray says, buy them cheap, buy them strong, hold them long. That's sort of the way you know the way that I do it. For other people, that's uh, that they don't love that. So find, find the time-tested, empirically validated system that speaks to you, right? Find that faith and then automate it, right? And then lock it in. Lock it in and then go move, you know, move on with your life. Like go, do, go, go do more interesting things than, than worry about financial market stories. So yeah, finding that finding that system that speaks to you on a personal visceral level uh, and then and then creating a system that locks it up and frees you up to do more important things and frees you up to go make money right i mean nothing is going to you know your your personal income is still the 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 best trade you'll ever make so that's that's what i would say Sure. No, very good indeed. Now, it's not every day, if I can put it this way, that I have a real shrink on, on, on the show. So I wanted to ask you a couple of maybe personal questions. I'm sure you used to ask people very personal questions. So if you don't mind, uh, I've just got a couple of, of uh, things that I wanted to, to try out on, on you. And the first one is, if you can finish this statement, and that is, I know I'm being successful when? Okay. When do you feel successful? So I know I'm being successful when I'm reading my kids a bedtime story. So for me, my job takes me away from home more than I wish it did. Not a ton, but more than I wish it did. So for me, um, money, success, all of this is just a way to get more time with my family. So that's when I know I'm being successful, when I'm spending time with my family. Mm. Yeah, very nice. Now, you've studied all these uh, behavioral biases and, and so on and so forth. Is there one particular one that you find the hardest to deal with yourself, so to speak? Is there kind of one well, so <laughs> that really 
still. So if you're if you're asking me if I'm arrogant, I am. No, to me, like for for me personally, and I think maybe for most people, which perhaps is projection. I think that that ego or or overconfidence is sort of the mother of of all biases because I think it's a bias that enables the other biases. You know, when we think of ourselves as as smarter or luckier or or better than average we lack the humility to do the work to combat the other biases. So to, to me, ego is the bias that enables every other bias. And then, you know, conversely, if you can be low ego, if you can be humble about your shortcomings and your fallibilities, um, the, the other stuff sort of, the other dominoes sort of fall. So both both for me personally and for the average investor, I think ego is, is the big one. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more on that. Final question, just uh, on on a personal level. I mean, are there any kind of habits or, or rituals um, that you do to achieve your own goals or dreams? Yes, keeps you even in your in your path. So <laughs> yeah, I w I will say that one you know one that I've picked up recently is is lifting is lifting weights and so one of the, the the first part of the behavioral investor we we talked about lots of great things we didn't talk about this that much i talk about the the physiological aspects of investing i feel like this is undercovered and so you know most traders wouldn't think of you know things like what did i have for breakfast Or, you know, did I lift something heavy or use my body today as very consequential uh, in terms of, of how successful they are as traders? But I would tend to disagree with that. And I think I make the case for that in, in the book in, in a more scientific way. But yeah, just lift, lifting weights, going to the gym has been something that has brought me a lot of sort of mental peace. You know, if you meet a psychologist you can just about be assured that they're crazy. Like none of us, none of us, none of us goes into this profession, you know, or I should say rather, we, we all go into this profession to figure ourselves out first. Like if you meet a psychologist, almost necessarily they're, they're messed up. And so I, I definitely fall into that category. And so for me, you know, going to the gym, lifting, lifting weights is, is a very positive way to improve just the noise between my ears as well as the as well as the sort of financial decisions that I make. Yeah. And we know, of course, from from other stories that that, you know, people like Ray Dalio, of course, incredibly successful. I mean, for him, it was meditation. Mm -hmm. And I certainly had other successful managers uh, on the podcast that cites uh, meditation as well as being something that they actively use every day. So uh, no, I think that's a good point. And I think it is actually underestimated that the whole sort of Uh, physiological side of things uh, before we finish i also wanted to ask if you had sort of any final thoughts i mean is there something that you feel i've missed given the fact we've only got an hour or so but i mean is there anything that you want to bring up uh, as kind of the final important thought point in our conversation daniel so i you know you've you've done a wonderful job i feel like we've covered a lot of ground i would just say that i hope that you know people who listen to this and choose to read my book or a book like mine about about behavioral finance will will approach this holistically i think that markets can teach us lessons about ourselves and i think that the lessons that you can learn on the way to being a better trader can also make you a better spouse can make you a better parent can make you a better neighbor and so you know the study of capital markets is really the study of human behavior 
And so as we approach it in that light, I think it has the ability to make us not only wealthier, but to make our lives richer as well. So I hope that people will undertake it uh, with, with that in mind. Yeah, very nice. Daniel, thank you so very much for, for sharing your thoughts and, and opinion on, on today's uh, topic. I really appreciate your openness during our conversation. And even though I feel we've only really scratched the surface of your work, and I encourage everyone listening to you to dig a lot deeper in your work. I find it so important uh, to have practitioners like yourself to share these ideas, because when ideas become conversation that leads to action, that's when real change happens. And to all our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you were able to take away something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in managed futures. From me, Niels Kastrolarsen and our exclusive sponsor, CME Group, thanks for listening. And I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing free resources that you can find on cmegroup.com as well as toptradersroundtable.com. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.